Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Kill son pole, PA. Hi, Johnny. Hello, my love. So what's new this week? You know, you ask me that every week, and this time I came prepared. <laughs> did you? Yes, I did. Okay, I, so what's new? I am actually ahead on the Christian atheist. I noticed that. We have essentially two in the can, mm -hmm. and I'm working on our second book, Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. So I feel pretty good about myself yes, this week. You're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this past Monday, you've been posting your Marathon Christian Atheist series on, ready? The JEDP Documentary Hypothesis slash Mount Ebal Curse Tablets slash C.S. Lewis's Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism yes. episodes. This has been a marathon yeah, for sure. Yeah. We've spent, what, the last two and a half, three months essentially inundated with the material on the Mount Ball Curse yeah, Tablet. You've done a lot so, of research. We've only been able to present a very small portion of what it is we've learned mm -hmm. and understood. But I stand behind everything that we have written and broadcast on this. Yeah. Yeah. You've done an amazing job. You really have. And then after all the videos and the, the articles that you've read and You've managed to coherently write it all into episodes. Right. And now we're so. trying to bring it all to a decent conclusion based around C.S. Lewis's essay, mm -hmm. Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, which we completed last week yeah. on No Compromise. I think we did that in three episodes, three huh? Three episodes, yep. yep. Okay. So the link to all those episodes, the Christian Atheist episodes, should be in the description here if you haven't had a chance to listen to them. And we just said that we had discussed Lewis's Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism in three episodes over the last three weeks. You have those links in the description too, right? Yes. <laughs> so what's on the menu today, John? Well, we were sort of flailing around trying to figure out what to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I am reading G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man for... For Simple Gifts. For the Simple Gifts podcast. Mm -hmm. And loving every second of it. Yeah. And you suggested maybe we should pick a chapter from that and do it. Right, right. And so I chose one that I thought would be relevant, and I haven't read it since I suggested it to you. And hopefully what you have prepared for us today will lead us on an interesting footpath. Okay, well, hopefully, hopefully I get what you were thinking because I'm not sure if I'm getting what you were thinking. So let's, let's see what, we, what comes of it. Okay, so like you said, you read The Everlasting Man for Simple Gifts, and basically you've been posting it a little bit at a time on Simple Gifts. It, it's not all posted yet, but on YouTube, the entire thing has been posted. As far as we've gotten with it, yes. Yeah. I forget how far we've gotten with it I on YouTube. I think we've made it through the first book and we oh, haven't okay. started the second book yet. Okay, so you're further along on YouTube than you are on the podcast. Right, for sure. Okay, so if you can't read it for yourself, be sure to listen to John reading it for you. He reads it without commentary. And as always, we'll begin this episode with the background information on the book. So the author, as we said, was G.K. Chesterton. What does the GK stand for? Gilbert Kyle. Okay, Gilbert Just Kyle. like C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples, mm -hmm. and J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. Mm -hmm. They seem to like using their 
initials yeah, instead yeah. of uh, their their formal names yeah. at that time period. And the title of the book is called The Everlasting Man. And we're just going to deal with chapter seven. And chapter seven is called The War of the Gods and Demons. The book was published in 1925. So okay. what's the big picture? Well, all the things that we've talked about in many of Lewis's essays mm-hmm. uh, apply here as well. Lewis himself would not have yet converted to Christianity That's in right. 1925. So Chesterton ended up being a huge influence on C.S. Lewis. He actually said that apart from his Christianity, G.K. Chesterton is the most sensible man writing in England. <laughs> and so when Lewis actually read this book, The Everlasting Man, yeah, he said it was for the first time laid out for him the rational story of Christianity in such a way that it made full sense to him. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard to underestimate the influence of G.K. Chesterton on C.S. Lewis. Yeah, that's right. And once you've read Chesterton, if you're familiar with Lewis, mm-hmm. you cannot help but see, oh, yeah, you can see it. the stamp of G.K. Chesterton in Lewis's writings. Right, right. Chesterton wrote The Everlasting Man. It was a deliberate response to H.G. Wells' The Outline of History. Mm. And in Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, he talks about his own spiritual journey. But in this book, The Everlasting Man, he talks about humanity's spiritual journey. Yes. Because I guess H.G. Wells' The Outline of History did not include spirituality. Right. So we would say that H.G. Wells was fully ensconced in the Hegelian worldview Mm -hmm. that negates transcendence. Right, right. And of course, G.K. Chesterton was fully embracing transcendence right? and trying to bring it back, trying heroically to make the case for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of his major pupils was C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't know if they ever met. That would be interesting to learn. Yeah. C.S. Lewis said, I mean, this is not a quote, but he said that George MacDonald baptized his imagination, but Chesterton baptized his intellect. Mm. Um, he thought that this book is the best apologetic he knew. Yes. Yeah, it is brilliant. It mm-hmm. really is in, in so many ways. Yeah. Okay, so before we start on Chapter 7, let's talk a little bit about G.K. Chesterton himself. He was born in 1874. When was C.S. Lewis born? 1895. Okay, so about 20 years before. Okay. And Chesterton died in 1936. He was a philosopher, an apologist, a literary and art critic. One of the things that people know him for is the Father Brown Detective series. Yes. Mm -hmm. And his apologetics. Right. He's referred to as the Prince of Paradox. Yes. And one of your favorite. Lewis actually hated that title for him. Do you know why? He didn't think that, that was a proper understanding of oh, Chesterton's Chesterton. work. Okay. But what's your favorite story about Chesterton, his <laughs> personal life? You know which one it is, mm-hmm. because it reminds me of me and you. <laughs> it's like Chesterton often found himself a flounder in the world about him and didn't quite, wasn't he wasn't the most organized of souls, <laughs> let's just put it that way. And I identify with him. So mm-hmm. one day he was out and about in London, and he called his wife and said something to this effect. This is where I am. Where ought I to be? <laughs> <laughs> and I can, I can definitely picture myself calling you oh, and yeah. asking you precisely that question. 
<laughs> okay, so let's get started with Chapter 7 of G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear it read, you can listen to John read it on our Simple Gifts podcast without commentary. The link should be in the description. Okay, so I'm going to read the first sentence of the chapter. The materialist theory of history that all politics and ethics are the expression of economics is a very simple fallacy indeed. It consists simply of confusing the necessary conditions of life with the normal preoccupations of life that are quite a different thing. When I read that, it struck me because it, it brought a huge amount of the thoughts I've been having lately on the soul together in one sentence, mm. which is what Chesterton seems to always be able to do, bring yeah. a lot of stuff together. Well, sometimes he, he seems to ramble too. Yeah, he does do that for sure. <laughs> There are times when I cannot make sense of G.K. Chesterton, no matter how hard I try, right? And this particular passage from Chesterton picks up on something we've talked about in previous No Compromises and on the Christian Atheist quite extensively. It's the mistaking the part for the whole. And this is something that the Hegelian worldview, and in particular, the Marxian approach to things, is particularly guilty of. Mm -hmm. taking the part for the whole, right. turning economics into the whole of human motivations. This is also conducive to understanding like the woke culture in which we live that wants to make oppression the fundamental reality in all human relations. And it's just not. It's not amongst fathers and children. Yeah. It's not amongst mothers and children. It's not between wife and husband. And Largely, it's not even the definitive thing in business, because most business people are actually trying seriously to serve their customers. It's not just a matter of oppression and trying to take advantage of others. Mm -hmm. There are vastly complicated motives yeah. that engage every human being with other human beings, and it cannot yeah. be reduced to the simplistic, monoideic explanations that are so often given by the left in our culture. Yeah, and I would go even further what I've been thinking a lot about lately about the soul. If, <laughs> if humans are no more than like evolved survival of the fittest animals, and of course all politics and ethics are just an expression of economics because we come into existence, we survive, we go out of existence. But if we have a soul, then you're not just flesh and blood and that's it. Lately I've been realizing that because of this presupposition that we've all evolved from animals and it's the basis of all science and all medicine and all history and just everything. When you listen to the experts, the reason for our behavior or for our illness or for anything at all is due to this presupposition that it all came from our evolutionary heritage. We grazed in the fields and that's why we do this now, or we, you, you know what I'm saying? And, and the soul, which is the most important the foundational, like the cornerstone of who we are, what everything is built on, it doesn't even come into any study, any research, no treatment, no discussion, no anything at all. And so that means we're missing a huge part of everything and, you know, absolutely big time we're missing in every way. So the more, not, not the to more mention I that see, go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry, the more I see the absence <clears throat> of the soul of man being the foundation to build everything on, to start with man is a soul, a living soul, and, and, and then build science and history and everything on that, the more I'm seeing why things are going wrong in the world. 
And so let me just say real quick what Chesterton says here, um, and this is kind of like what I'm trying to say. But so far from the movements that make up the story of man being economic, we may say that the story only begins where the motive of the cows and sheep leaves off. That's what they say. They say, we're just animals. Yeah. It would be hard to maintain that the crusaders went from their homes into a howling wilderness because cows go from a wilderness to a more comfortable grazing ground. But that's that's kind of what the experts from like medicine to psych, psychology to the scientist to the historian, they say the reason humanity has done anything is because of their mere animal heritage. So what what would happen if we studied all the sciences, medicine, history from the presupposition that in the beginning God created and God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul? So I've been saturated my entire life with the other side, the other side's experts based on presuppositions taken as absolute truth. And I'm kind of getting tired of that side now. I'm tired of it <laughs> filling me that. Now I'm seeing, like you said about the world being unknowingly Hegelian, I'm tired of seeing the world and all its what's, why's, and how's through only one side that that we came from this, we evolved from animals. I want to know the other side now, and I want to know the disciplines from the other presupposition now. Okay, so anyway, that's enough of my rant. I want to go back. It's I want a to go good back. rant. I want to go back to how Chesterton closes the next paragraph, and this is the point he's trying to make. They all come back to what a man fundamentally feels when he looks forth from those strange windows, which he calls the eyes, upon that strange vision that we call the world. The human is a soul created in the image of God. It's not part of the body. It's separate from the body. It uses the body as a tool to experience the world. And once the soul leaves the body, we know the body's dead and returns to the ground. So that part right there reminds me of how, you know, these strange windows, which we call eyes, which we look on the world. And Chesterton talks about the soul's desire for religion. He says, whatever starts wars, the thing that sustains wars is something in the soul that is something akin to religion. And it might not be something sacred. It might not be a sacred religion. It is the adherence to like a worldview in a religious way. Right. There is a religious war when two worlds meet. That is when two visions of the world meet. Or in more modern language, when two moral atmospheres meet, it seems to be something the soul does because of its desire for religion. And that's what it seems like he's talking about. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. You always have to listen to me in the course of these. It's fun to listen to you because I know we've been talking about these things Mm -hmm. quite a bit over the past few months. And it's fun for me. I've enjoyed so much seeing your passion on some of these things. And it's deeply affected me, too, as I think about these things. And I think you're right. I I mean, I don't think we're fundamentally in conflict because, as Lewis makes the case, the great myth of evolution, he thought was dying out. And I don't think it's died out at all. I think it's become more and more powerful and more and more pervasive. And I don't think that that's a mistake. I think that is a direct legacy of the Hegelian philosophy. I don't think that the 1860s publication of The Origin of Species was an accident, that it came after the Hegelian worldview. And as Lewis tries to make the case 
there's a distinction between the scientific theory and all of the other things that come along with it. I don't know quite what to make of all of that, but without a doubt, the doctrine of evolution has given us tremendous heartache and great damage Because World War II and a lot of what resulted from World War II was built on the progressive notions that were filled with evolutionary doctrine. And even today, I think that there are things that we are profoundly missing, as you just pointed out, by looking at things from one perspective only and failing to understand the fundamental value that the Judeo-Christian worldview gives to the human reality that is mankind created in the image of God. All right, so at this point in the um, chapter, Chesterton describes, compares, and contrasts the religions of the Romans and the Greeks, and then the paradox of the Romans' religion running through every domestic detail like a climbing plant, and the very opposite spirit, the spirit of revolt. How revolt is a soul's satisfying of religion? As I remember, as I read through this, I found it fascinating. And this is one of the great advantages of reading Chesterton. Mm -hmm. He sees things in a unique way. And that's why they often called him the the father of paradox or whatever it was that they called him in that way. He sees things in a unique way that forces you to look at them again and say, wait a second, he's seeing something here that I've missed. Mm -hmm. And when he talks about the religion of the Romans... He makes the point that the mythology of the Greeks was largely adopted by the Romans, and yet they made it much more intimate. They brought the gods down to the hearth, Mm -hmm. to the reality of everyday life, in a way in which the Greeks did not. The Greeks were much more the gods are out there. And so in its own way, the Romans were doing something that was, in a sense, Hegelian. They were making things more imminent. They were making it more intimate. They were bringing it down to the fundamental level of daily life lived at the the level of subsistence as a family. And that was vitally important to the Romans in a way that the Greeks, I think, more abstractly missed. Right. And And then, well, then Chesterton says about the paradox of how their religion, the Romans' religion, running through every domestic detail like a climbing plant, and the very opposite spirit, the spirit of revolt. Yes, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's, It's like they had this extreme conservatism that was a notion of the family being the fundamental notion of everything underlying mm-hmm. the whole structure of the society. And yet they were also revolutionary because of that conservatism. Right. That is, they refused to cede all the power to the government. They wanted the level of the family to be fundamental. Right. And therefore, they were revolutionary. And that strikes me as right Mm -hmm. at some level and fascinating too. And it's not something you hear from other historians much. And so I found it very refreshing and exciting to think about. Okay, so the next thing Chesterton describes is the place called Newtown. Right. (laughs) He says, but the worshippers of Moloch were not gross or primitive. They were members of a mature and polished civilization Abounding in refinements and luxuries, they were probably far more civilized than the Romans, and Moloch was not a myth, or at any rate, his meal was not a myth. 
these highly civilized people really met together to invoke the blessing of heaven on their empire by throwing hundreds of their infants into a large furnace. We can only realize the combination by imagining a number of Manchester merchants with chimney pot hats and mutton chop whiskers going to church every Sunday at 11 o'clock to see a baby roasted. And who is this new town? This is Carthage. Right. And Carthage became the fundamental enemy of Rome. Mm -hmm. And in many ways destroyed Rome. And yet Rome never died. And I think one of the fascinating things that I got out of this chapter, if Mm -hmm. I'm remembering it correctly, is that Rome was essentially killed off by Carthage, but she rose from the dead. Right. And of course, Chesterton plays on that notion of rising from the dead as a prefigurement of the Christian reality. That is, that the goodness and the hope that lies in the image of God that is placed in mankind, will rise from the dead, even if it has been beaten to the point of death, because the goodness is the image of God. Mm -hmm. And you cannot defeat that perfect goodness. And so the evil that was Newtown, Carthage, was ultimately to be defeated by the goodness of Rome. And I think if I'm remembering correctly again, that he sets these two apart in terms of mythology. That is, there's a good mythology and a bad mythology. And the bad mythology is instantiated in Carthage, most clearly the Phoenician culture that had become so corrupt and so materialistic and so driven by desire for material goods. Right, right that they were willing to sacrifice their own children to maintain the status quo. And I guess another thing that I found most fascinating about this was that Carthage actually was representing the highest cultural achievement. Mm -hmm. They were not like when we think of the Philistines, when we think of the Bible stories, they're like these low-class people. No, Carthage was actually the highest civilization of its time, Mm -hmm. the most developed, the most civilized, much more so than Rome. So their culture was highly developed and yet deeply corrupt as well. And Chesterton paints that as demonic in its origins. And the good mythology of Greece that was the dreams of mankind, the hopes of mankind, was ultimately to defeat and destroy Carthage. Right. Carthago de Lenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Right. And the other thing, like like playing on what I said before about the soul and its desire to worship and and for religion, he says a lot about how Carthage's religion was materialism mm-hmm. and Rome's religion like you said, was a domesticated, they brought it to the home. He says, why do men entertain this queer idea that what is sordid must always overthrow what is magnanimous, that there is some dim connection between brains and brutality, or that it does not matter if a man is dull so long as he is also mean? Why do they vaguely think of all chivalry as sentiment and all sentiment as weakness? They do it because they are, like all men, primarily inspired by religion. And I think he he shows that 
Carthage, their um, obsession with economics and politics was their filling of the, the desire for religion in their life. Yes. Yeah. I think it actually comes down and, and jump in at any point if you want to, to the two fundamental views of the world right. of Cain versus Abel. Mm-hmm. Either the world is a good world in which we need to conform ourselves to the right that is present in this world that God has created, and therefore to follow the rules, to do what is right. And if we do that, things will work out as best as they possibly can. But if you believe that the world is misruled, that it is misformed, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world, and that you need to remake it in your own image, then you're going to battle against all that the world gives you. You're not going to accept the rules that are given. You're going to be willing to fight and battle and do what is necessary to bring things to your way of viewing things. It is the utilitarian mindset that I will do whatever I need to do to achieve the ends that I desire. And I think that is fundamental. I don't think Chesterton ever actually says it this way, Mm -hmm. but that is fundamental to the view of the Carthaginians. And that's why you were willing to do the ultimate sacrifice of your own children to Moloch. Because that's the highest gift you can give, and it will yield the highest results in your life. Yeah, but I keep coming back to this. I think Chesterton, he he's trying to lay, lay out the case that the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, were religious. Mm-hmm. And just, okay, just like today, the woke. Mm-hmm. It's this desire, this soul's desire for religion yes. that makes them do what they do. And it's all throughout history. It's this soul's desire for religion. Listen to this. The Punic power fell because there is in this materialism a mad indifference to real thought. By disbelieving in the soul, which is what everybody does, this is what science today, yes. medicine, yep. psychology, history, theory. they disbelieve in the soul. By disbelieving in the soul, it comes to disbelieving in the mind. Being too practical to be moral, it denies what every practical soldier calls the moral of an army. Their religion was a religion of despair, even when their practical fortunes were hopeful. Their religion was a religion of force and fear. Their philosophy of the world had weariness in its very heart. In a word, how should they understand the mind of man who had so long bowed down before mindless things, money and brute force and gods who had the hearts of beast? And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. When you don't believe in the soul, you lose the understanding of the mind. Yeah. So, And we're just animals. And even animals are just material processes. That's all they are. And everything that is coming out in the world today, that's the presupposition. It is. So don't you think we're missing something? There's something missing. Yeah, it's the philosophy of imminence. But you want to say more. (laughs) I know, because you keep coming back to it. So what is it I'm missing that you want? Because, (laughs) Because I feel that Chesterton is saying that because of the soul, because historically we've missed the soul. 
we're missing the fact that the Carthaginians were religious. They were they were worshiping, but yes. they were worshiping in their own way. Yeah. Just as the Romans were worshiping in their own way, but they were worshiping wrongly. The desire of the soul to worship. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.